And sometimes they fashion these like weapons out of bottles. I've seen that a couple of times. So they literally wee and poo into their into bottles, let them fester, so they oh. become even more disgusting. And then they sort of um, try and squirt you out of their hatches. Um, but we suspect that he had these like paranoid delusions about facial expressions. <clears throat> so literally, if somebody looked at him in a certain way or raised like an eye, one particular eyebrow in his deluded mind, he thought that they were trying to kill him. So he thought that they were assassins. Mm. We had to sort of calm him down. And then he didn't, he didn't actually physically hurt anybody, but he was like towering over us and he had his like fists uh, clenched. And he seemed to, for some random reason, really transfix on the social worker on our team. And there's no particular reason he just saw him. I would argue that Hal Shipman was kind of a bit of an oddball, isolated, withdrawn, just a, 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 an odd, bizarre man, whereas the McCanns were, before this all happened, like normal, sociable people. It was in a foreign country, and there were reports of these like dodgy men uh, being around before, like asking for money. And, and then he walked to the prison officer's room, placed the dagger on the table, and he said that the next roll call would be two people short. And they would sort of mark which one was his and they would sort of take it in turns and make this little ritual out of it, like mixing feces in his food. And then he was complaining that it tasted weird, but I don't think he even knew what was going on. He committed offences against both males and females, committed offences against young to old people. I think his oldest victim was 75. And there's even accusations of necrophilia. But at the same time, at other points in, the, in his life, when he's developing his own sort of internalised persona, uh, he's been told that he's amazing, that he's special. There's minimum a 10-minute window before any of it kicks in. And so if they're, if they're extremely violent, then they can cause a lot of damage within those 10 minutes. All right, so we've got Dr. Shaham Das, part three. He's got hundreds of thousands of views on the channel. He's become a co-host. Huge thank you to Shaham for coming back on time after time and not just regaling us with his horror stories from Broadmoor and the case studies and the people who've turned their lives around and, and actually got out who were in psychosis. Absolutely fascinating stuff but also commenting on some of the big stories in true crime. And two of the biggest, if you've just watched the Netflix Savile documentary, we're going to be talking about Savile. We've got our Savile documentary coming out. There's going to be two waves of this. You've got the Netflix wave, the BBC wave. Everyone's going to be looking at these videos this year. And also McCann. The Madeline McCann stuff has been some of the biggest stuff on the channel. We're going to be getting to the McCann story later on. We're going to be getting to the Savile story later on. And Dr. Das is going to give us his contemporary thoughts on both of those cases. And huge thank you to Jen for getting up so early today. <laughs> <laughs> and all, all of the links for everybody are in the description box below this video. So huge thank you for coming back, Dr. Das. Yeah, Always a cheers. pleasure. Sean, Jen, you know I love being on your podcast, yeah. Oh, you're brilliant. Congratulations <laughs> on yeah. your new book, In Two Minds, coming out. Link will be in the description box as well. And, you know, people are, are extremely fascinated by your story because of your first-hand knowledge in particular, what you experienced. And one of the things you experienced was a suicide on your ward. Was that in Broadmoor? Uh, no. So it wasn't on a secure ward for offenders. It was before I specialised in forensic psychiatrists on a general adult ward when I was a junior psychiatrist. 
Um, and what were the circumstances of that case? So this this is one of those sort of few cases in, in a career where a psychiatrist has that kind of haunts you a little bit. Uh, so it was a woman who was in her mid to late 40s. And she, what's so shocking about this case is that she was absolutely fine uh, only a few months before. So she didn't have much of a psychiatric history. I think there was a little bit of self-harming as a teenager, but that sort of passed. And to all intents and purposes, she seemed really settled. Then she developed this um, potential diagnosis of cancer. And she had a number of tests, investigations, and it was all cleared. But shortly after that, she developed a psychotic depression. So she was convinced that she had cancer, even though everybody, uh, all the specialists told her she didn't, showed her the scan results. You know, uh, tragically, she had two teenage uh, twin boys and her husband, and everybody was telling her, you know, you're fine, you're all right. But she couldn't get past this this kind of obsession. Well, it was a a delusion and a obsession. So she believed that she was dying. Um, And... I clocked her in, so there's lots of different sort of junior psych- psychiatrists within the hospital, lots of different wards. This was um, in Edinburgh, by the way. Uh, and I was the one that admitted her, clocked her in, and spoke to her husband. And I remember saying to him that, you know, we'll get her better and, and it'll be fine. She'll be able to be discharged. Uh, and then very shortly afterwards, only within a few days, she actually killed herself on the ward. So she was on 15-minute observations. And she'd obviously timed it so that when the nurses had come, she she used the opportunity as soon as they'd left and she got a kettle cord from uh, her room and hung herself mm-hmm. and she died in the middle of the night uh, and I was also by coincidence I happened to be the doctor that was on call so again there's lots of there's like 10 of us but it happened to be me that was on that night so obviously I got bleeped and came down to the ward it was like 2 or 3 in the morning and there was nothing we could do she was she was dead do you re- recall any specific conversations you had with her just to uh, yes, yeah, she was, she was really difficult to, to chat to because she was so sort of agitated and because of these delusions and she was so preoccupied with this cancer diagnosis that even if you tried to steer the conversation away from that, it always kept coming back to that. What, and, what, yeah. what started her believing she had a cancer diagnosis? I think, uh, well, so I think it was based on reality. So she did actually have a, a, a lump in her breast. Um, and, as I said, all the reassurances and all the scans didn't make a difference. Biopsy didn't make a difference. And I think she just developed a psychotic depression, which is really unusual. Well, first of all, it's a rare diagnosis, number one. Um, it, it tends to happen earlier on in life. So it's really unusual for somebody to develop something like this in their 40s. It usually kind of starts in your late teens or your 20s and keeps relapsing and remitting. So it's unusual that, that it happens so quickly, so intensely and was so um, so severe as well. Uh, she just d- didn't get out of that belief. So she started having all these nihilistic delusions, which is really typical in psychotic depression. So she believed she was going to die. She believed the world didn't exist. Um, she, yeah, so I think that all influenced what she did. Is that extreme theory of hypochondria? Uh, yeah, so nihilistic d- delusions are almost exclusive for psychotic depression as opposed to things like schizophrenia or delusion d- disorder. And it is basically believing that that things don't exist or that you don't exist or that you're dead or the world's dead. Uh, so it's just like basically nihilism. It's like an extreme form of nihilism. But the thing about that case is that um, after I tried to resuscitate her, and I, obviously I couldn't, nobody could, um, I had to speak to her husband as well. So he came in, in the middle of the night and usually it's the consultant that sees them. So I, I was only a, a junior doctor at the time, but the consultant lived too far away. So I was the first, like the, by the, when the husband was there, I was the only doctor on site. So I had to basically tell him what happened. And it was completely like, he knew that his wife was unwell, but he had no clue. Nobody had any kind of inkling that this would happen. So obviously it was a massive shock. So it was just really emotional to have to sit there and tell him. And I remember thinking in my head, that I told them only like a week before that she was going to get better and that she was going to leave. And I felt really, 
I don't know what the word is. Guilty, I suppose. Guilty because what did I said she wasn't believe true. that she didn't exist, or just the whole world didn't exist? She believed that she, she believed that she was she was already she was already dead, and it was just sort of tight. Uh, like she was already dead, but the physical element of the death hadn't arrived yet. If that makes sense. So she thought she was psychologically dead, and she didn't exist. Like in limbo. Yeah, exactly. But the physical symptoms of the cancer she thought hadn't caught up with her. She thought so, she was a ghost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so she yeah. she thought she was going to die physically within a few days. So she just. Well, how do you so. try and rationalise a person like that? What kind of things would you say to them? Uh, you you can't say so you can't really ever argue against the delusion, and it may no 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 no. You have to play along with it. Uh, well, so it's a really fine line. So you can't you can't encourage it, but you can't argue against it. I mean, I mean, you can try and argue against it, but if somebody's got a true delusion, you know, it's a mental illness. So you have to change somebody, the subject. Somebody hearing voices, you yeah. just have to try and reassure them around it. So um, if she said, I'm dead, what would you say? Um, I would, but she did say that to me several times. So I'd, I'd have to say, I, I know you feel like that, but as I've explained, I think it's due to a mental illness. And I think you can improve if you take these medications and it's not going to be something that happens overnight, but you have to trust us. You have to carry on taking this medication for weeks. And then eventually these symptoms should disappear. And they probably would have if she you know, hadn't taken a life. So when you said something like that, would she, would she just go back to the delusion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. At wow. best, you could distract her for a couple of minutes, but... It, she was so sort of preoccupied and obsessed with it that it would just come back around. It was just literally all she was thinking about, which is why I think she took a life. And what sort of medication was she on? Uh, so for something like that, you use both antidepressants and antipsychotics, but um, they take weeks to work. So most antidepressants and antipsychotics take roughly four, four to six weeks to work. So uh, the most important thing is to risk assess somebody. And there was no indication that she would take a life. I mean, she was agitated, but she never, obviously we asked her several times and she, she denied having, uh, having the intention, suicidal intentions. And you can't watch everybody all the time. There's just not enough resources. So you have to kind of prioritize who you think is the most riskiest. So we thought she was risky, but we didn't think she was an acute risk of taking a life. If we did, then she'd have been on like constant observations. Grief. So what happened with the catatonia cases? So I've seen a couple of cases of catatonia. I think that's from, as a psychiatrist perspective, it's one of the most sort of uh, unusual and unique presentations that we see. It's really rare nowadays. Um, and I think it's rare because usually people have been really unwell for several months without any kind of treatment before they become catatonic. Which means what? Uh, yeah. So catatonia, it's, it's an extreme form of either a mood disorder like depression or schizophrenia. And it's where it has two different presentations. Either somebody's really, really agitated and literally can't sit still. So for their entire waking hours, and sometimes they can't sleep because they're just constantly on the move. Or, and the one one that I saw, uh, is the opposite of that. So they're completely still, like absolutely still. And they'll sit there and they have this thing called like waxy fle fle uh, flexibility. So if you lift their limbs up into a weird position and let go, they'll literally stay there for hours. Frozen. So this, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So it's like, wow. it's like, like a mannequin basically. No uh, so I remember this guy on our ward and um, like, if you stood him up, he would stand up and you'd, you'd have to literally lie him in bed when it was bedtime. Cause he, he would, he would stand there like for hours per day. So you lie him in bed. He was like spoon fed by the nurses for um, about a month. Um, and he did get better, but again, it took like weeks of medication. So we had to, like he would, if you told him to do something, he'd do it. So he, he would sit there for hours, but if you said, open your mouth, he'd open your mouth, he'd open his mouth so he could put medicine in. You could like, it's like a little baby, I suppose, like put yeah. water in his mouth, tell him to swallow and he'd swallow. But if he didn't, he'd literally like dribble water out of his mouth. Oh, wow. um, so the reason that I, I think it's an, uh, that it stands out in my memory is just because it's something that you read about in textbooks during your training but you very rarely see so a lot of psychiatrists will go their entire career without seeing somebody with it's almost catatonia. like it's paralysed but 
yeah it's, it's a bit like locked in syndrome i guess I mean, yeah. yeah agreed what, and, what uh, is the fate of these people so it it's not the thing about catatonia is it, it's it's quite rare and it is quite uh damaging or risky in that if they're not treated if they're literally so imagine someone like that was left at home if he didn't have friends and families that picked it up then he'd literally starve to death like he wouldn't have the impetus to, to eat when he was hungry uh, but if they're taken into hospital like this man it uh, was and if they're given the right medication they uh, almost almost all of them do recover so it's about three or four weeks of medication then gradually it's, it's a really slow process i remember this guy he would you could see in his face from like not from day to day but from week to week that he would like start following people around the room or react to noise but like really slowly and he was just startled for a good couple of weeks like he didn't know what the hell was going on around him he was just in this com- confused perplexed kind of state uh, but with more and more medication they can eventually get better and that's what happens with him oh, wow. so they go from like being in a zombie like state mentally to becoming fully aware again yeah that's or right. is, the deg- is the degrees uh, so it's both so they do eventually do that but it's a very slow process so you, you see them uh, sort of become aware of their surroundings really really gradually really slowly yeah. and how does that start that process uh it's it's quite hard to know how people get to that state because they're never in hospital at that point and well well, i'll rephrase that so either they start becoming a bit perplexed and a bit confused and they begin beginning to become psychotic and for you know 95 percent of cases one way or another they present to mental health services either from the family or because you know people at work or even just like seeing them in the street are worried about them because they, they obviously look not right so the vast majority of the time they're treated before they get to full-blown catatonia so it's, that's why it's so rare um so i think it's just a, gr- a bit like them getting better them getting worse is a really slow process so i think it happens over over weeks so you came across dirty protests. Oh, I want that question. <laughs> <laughs> you can ask it if you want. <laughs> yeah, dirty protests. <laughs> I know what one of them is. Um, I haven't seen one. So, so yeah, I've I've seen an inordinate inordinate number of dirty protests Have in my you? career. Yeah, what? Yeah, it just seems to be quite. Com- I mean, not like common like every day, but like you track dirty protests. <laughs> <laughs> something about me. Um, so most I, I've only ever seen it in prison. Don't think I've ever seen it in. Actually, no, that's not true. I have seen it in in, in psychiatry units, but not as often. So in prison, there's like a most big prisons have a healthcare unit. It's a bit like a psychiatric ward inside the prison. So it's technically supposed to be a ward for any uh, anybody that needs hospital, but. 90% or more of the patients are there for psychiatric reasons. Uh, and they tend to be quite psychotic. And one of the frustrations, one of the problems of prison psychiatry is that there's a really long waiting list to get people into hospital, into the medium and high school units, uh, because the turnover is so slow, because patients are in there for, for years. So they get discharged very infrequently. So the upshot of that is that when I was working as a prison psychiatrist in the healthcare unit, there'd be like eight to ten very very unwell patients and most of them were locked in their rooms and some of them would do dirty protests so they're agitated they're angry some of them don't believe they're ill uh, like have no insight into their symptoms want to be freed or want to be in an ordinary location and because they, there's not really a way for them to act out or to attack anybody because they're literally locked in their cells one of their only weapons is the is the dirty mm. process so that's either literally smearing their own sort of uh, feces all over the walls i've seen that a few times and sometimes they fashion these like weapons out of bottles i've seen that a couple of times so they literally wee and poo into their into bottles let them fester so they become even more disgusting and then they sort of um try and squirt you out of their hatches when they walk past my my friend of mine was on the cleanup crew for the shit slingers they called in arizona Yeah. yeah and he said there was one guy who made those weapons and the guards came in and cleaned his cell out and put him in a dry cell 
naked and handcuffed behind his back. And there was a hatch on the door where the guard looked for every so often. But they'd underestimated his resolve. So <laughs> he shat on the floor, mouthed it, oh. waited with his face Jeez. at the hatch. Yeah. With this just Word. percolating and <laughs> with his saliva. And when the guard appeared at the hatch, he went, blasted it in his face. Now, the guard had a protective shield, but he was so caught on a words, he went like that. Oh, no. <laughs> and it went up, up into his mouth and his nose. That's oh, disgusting. Man. Yeah. yeah. So but that the, must have happened fairly frequently for there to be a name, shit slingers in the prison. There's a whole yeah. run of them in Florence Supermax in Arizona where they put the shit slingers. Yeah. <laughs> so these guys are just behind, like, plexiglass in these cells and they very rarely get out of their cells yeah. but they whatever they can get their hands on they weaponize I mean the yeah. basic one is like chicken bone with poo on it and you make <laughs> a, a blowpipe and dart somebody going past your cell somehow Yeah, and if, if it gets into your bloodstream because a lot of people have got hepatitis and stuff in the if the dart gets into your bloodstream, the bloodstream transfers it throughout your body and it messes up your immune system. Yeah. But some of the slingers, they would leave uh, bottles of poo and piss for days until mold grew on yeah, it and yeah. it, got, it got even more... That is disgusting. Weaponized. The thing is, it sounds insane to us, and it is, but if you're in that situation and there's literally nothing else you can use as a weapon, that's the only thing you can... Because there's no objects in your room. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense that you do that. Is it mainly done for attention? So in my experience, I've seen it mostly in relation to mental illness. So people have been absolutely psychotic, but... I think in the, ca- in the case of like Sean's talking about, it's it's people who, I wouldn't even say attention, it's just like absolute vile hatred towards the system and you just, you're willing to put your own shit in your mouth to, to try and get these, mm. get the guards, I guess. There's that and then there's the politics, isn't there? Some, it's like some people who've considered themselves political prisoners, like uh, was it the, some of the IRA guys have gone and done dirty process and things like that. Yeah. And then there's the mentally ill, because you've got people just, like, the, the cleanup guy was telling me that there's people just, like, make little statues out of poo and, like, God, things like God that, and just sick. play with poo all day long. Yeah, and, yeah, and write, write with it on the yeah. Yeah. I think we're, we would have yeah. a chat about poo on a Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> no. But. Yeah, so there's a whole range of uh, motivations, isn't there, behind it? Yeah. Because the, the cleanup crew guy said to me, you know, the men like to resolve their disputes with their fists. So if you can't get out of your cell and you've got a problem with someone down the run and that person's walking past your cell going to the shower, you can't punch him, but you can, you can get your shit on him. Yeah, it's like one of the only opportunities you'd have. Yeah. Right? Your little window, of, yeah. like a five-minute window of your day. Or if they've got it in front of the guards as well and the guards will get something thrown on them. And they've got very little else to do or to preoccupy their minds because to be in that situation in the first place, they're not allowed uh, items in their cells. So they're probably just, they've got this hatred and they're just spewing over it uh, like the entire day. So they work themselves up yeah. to their only window of opportunity. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. disgusting. It is disgusting. <laughs> so next up are gory assault stories that you've encountered and including convict justice, I imagine, on a Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I've seen quite a few cases of um, of people getting really badly targeted and bullying in prison, as I'm sure you have. Um, and so one of them that really sticks in my mind was a... a, a Let's alleged, call that person a peanut. Okay. Person a peanut. Yeah. An alleged peanut. Um, so this is pre-trial, so 
as I'm sure you'll know more than me, Sean, that the prisoners make up their own mind if somebody's got the charges and they're kind of assumed to be guilty, aren't they? Uh, and he was targeted, beaten up, hit a few times, and then he went into the protective custody wing. And for about two or three weeks, un- unbeknownst to anybody, they were, the other prisoners were putting feces in his food. So they, he would have to, they would all have their food specially delivered to their wing. And they would sort of mark which one was his and they would sort of take it in turns and make this little ritual out of it, like mixing feces in his food. And then he was complaining that it tasted weird, but I don't think he even knew what was going on. And then they got caught doing it one day by the prison staff and they admitted they'd been doing it for weeks. So firstly then, how did they know that this guy was a peanut? Um, I think because he was really... um, uh, what's the word he was really reserved and secretive about his charges mm. so he wasn't he didn't really say what he was in for and kept telling people it's none of their business and then i, th- you can't I think do that, can you yeah because people are going to assume the worst and, yeah. and i think there was some press on him um so i think they they had like friends on the outside who because they were suspicious about him they got they got they to do a bit of research got yeah. the info. Wow. and then you said the prisoners got caught doing this yeah. How did they get caught? I think just literally a prison guard was walking past while one of them was like... I'm putting a bit of shit on yeah. Sprinkling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. And I imagine that they got slapped on the wrist because the staff tend to conspire against the peanuts. Yeah. I'm sure you've got loads of stories of uh, oh, yeah, guards. KLS. We were, we've had guys on here, the guards have had hit lists that they've given to the prisoners. Yeah. Yeah. And said, here's that one and here's that one. Yeah. Yeah, and... Wow. And yeah. I mean, could that kill someone eating um, human shit after th- a period of time? I think it could, but you'd, ha- you'd probably have to have quite a lot. So you'd have to get some sort of um, really bad stomach infection. But I think they were just doing it because they wanted it to carry on sort of indefinitely. So they were doing it in little doses over a long period of time. And they were sort of, it was more about having a laugh at his expense than actually trying to kill him. I think because yeah, get- they want to kill you, they put glass in it. They, they crush glass down. So you have to check your food all the time in there then? If, even if you're not a peanut? <sighs> Um, if you've got enemies, it is, it is, yeah, they can get you through your food. I know of a person who, um, I had a cellmate, he told me a story, Aryan Brotherhood story, and some guys, they did a peanut, they they, they murdered a peanut, and it became a case, there was three of them, and then the AB offered them the patch, because they held their mud, they didn't snitch, they offered them the tattoo, and, but they told the Aryan Brotherhood to F themselves. They said, we don't want your tattoo. We don't want to be members. So one of them was in the chow hall and he was eating on his food and there was a hypodermic needle in it with, uh, oh. I, about, I think it had hepatitis C. I don't know if it had HIV. I think it was hepatitis C. But he contracted the hepatitis off it and he ended up suing the Arizona Department of Corrections. Yeah. It was a big lawsuit. They could cure the hepatitis now, but back then... I think this was before interferon, and it was a, it slowly kills you. Doesn't it? Eating your liver up back then, it did at least. Yeah. Uh-huh. So there's, that reminds me of another case that I talk about in my book. Actually, so I actually saw a man who was suing the prison as well because he got beaten up for giving intel against this uh, gang in prison who were um, serving spice to other people, and basically this this gang was intentionally running up drug debts, and beating people up like. Fra- like really serious violence like fracturing bones etc etc if they weren't getting paid back uh, and this guy felt sorry for the victim felt sorry for a few of the people so he he reported this to the governors and then I think he had a meeting with he had like some sort of intel meeting where he was telling the prison officers uh, no he was telling one of the um, uh, chaplains this 
and the chaplain had made some notes on a piece of paper accidentally <sighs> left Sorry. accidentally left the piece of paper like in the church another prisoner went and saw and basically like got all this information about this guy snitching told everybody else and he was just like heavily targeted I don't think they put shit in his food, but they certainly beat him up. And then he got, like, he changed, went to the vulnerable ring, still got attacked, changed prisons a couple of times. But that sort of label of being a snitch just followed him around. They followed him. Yeah. Snitches yeah, get both. stitches and poo in their food. Is that the last of the assault stories? Uh, or just, the, the other one that really sticks out in my mind was, I, saw, I didn't see this happen, but I saw somebody who had like a melted side of his face. Oh, I'm getting jugged. Um, yeah. Jugged, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, mm. um boiling water, sugar, so it sticks on your face. And I think that was over a drug debt. He didn't snitch, so nobody fully knows what it was about, but it was highly suspected. Wow. So what about the paranoiac in Broadmoor who made the shiv? So he was in the, he eventually went to Broadmoor, but he was in a medium secure unit and I saw him. So the people that come, come through those units that I'm very used to working with tend to be quite paranoid. Uh, they tend to have committed assault. So his presentation was fairly typical, but he wasn't getting better with medication even though we tried different combinations and unlike most of our other patients, he wouldn't, he was so guarded and secretive that he wouldn't tell us what was going on in his head. Um, but we suspect that he had these like paranoid delusions about facial expressions. <clears throat> so literally if somebody looked at him in a certain way or raised like an eye, one particular eyebrow in his deluded mind, he thought that they were trying to kill him. So he thought that they were assassins. Yeah. What like wild man? It to... probably worked. It was <laughs> wild man. Yeah. Cause his eyebrows used to go like, what, like that? one, just one, just one, just one. <laughs> Who's going to harm someone? Just one eyebrow would go like that. The other one stayed right now. Really? Yeah. Okay. So maybe, <laughs> really? This, maybe this guy wasn't delusional. Maybe he just met Wild Man. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what he'd done is, again, this happens a lot in prison. Doesn't happen so much in hospital, but he made like he he fashioned several weapons that we didn't know about um, out of like tooth, toothbrushes and the little blades that you get to make these like shivs. And he'd he'd uh, he had about three or four hidden in his room that we didn't know about, and he just went around slashing other patients. And I attacked a member of staff because he genuinely thought that they were trying to harm him. So he ended up in the seclusion room. Uh, and while that happened, the staff searched his room and found all the other weapons. But when he was in the seclusion room, so what's quite, seclusion rooms are a bit like what people think of as a padded cell. So mm. it's where you put the patients who are the most agitated. And unlike prison, the SEG unit, it's, it's all about treatment and rehabilitation. So you try and, you don't put them in for punishment, you put them in for protection. Probably feels the same for the individual, but that's, that's the ethos behind it. <laughs> <clears throat> so I'm about to have a cough of it. So these paranoid people... <coughs> Sorry, Sean. It's all right. These paranoid people, do they, like, have delusions about people hurting them? They don't get hurt because it's a delusion, but then they lash out and hurt other people because they feel they got to hurt those people before they get hurt themselves? Exactly, Is that yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you see that so it's like, repeating over yeah, and over? Yeah, yeah. So you, it's like preemptive kind of violence. So paranoid delusions, there's, there's very sort of common presentations of them. So one is X and Y is trying to kill me. People are following me. The FBI seems to be one that comes up a lot. Even the in the UK? Watching me. Yeah, yeah, even in the UK. Is it? Yeah, yeah. I think because, this is my theory, is because a lot of people watch American TV yeah. and I think yeah. that when you become mentally unwell, sometimes you absorb everything around you that you see. So I've certainly seen people who believe that they're characters in particular films or that films like, even American films or even films that are filmed, you know, on the other side of the world that they're somehow connected to them or that they're, they're, they're like a, a member of that 
any memorable um, films that you can yeah actually i was going to talk about this one in the case later <laughs> but um uh what i think is quite interesting is the matrix has come up Ooh. about three or four times in cases that i've seen oh, i do think we believe we're living in the matrix yeah you do? sorry okay <laughs> <laughs> might have to section you jen yeah. <laughs> definitely <laughs> and it kind of makes, it kind of makes sense to me because the like the whole um background story of the matrix is fits in really well with paranoid delusion so if you think that there's something going out on that you know there's a huge conspiracy that you know about but most other people don't know about that's like classic schizophrenia basically so i'm obviously i'm sure matrix wasn't designed to be that but it happens to fit in really well so i've seen like four or four at least four completely separate patients who've never met each other who believe that they are a character from the matrix or that the matrix exists which and character like neo yeah, yeah, I, I think mostly mostly uh, at least two people have told me that they believe that they're, that they're neo uh, that the matrix was made for them and it was like a message to them it was like the matrix itself trying to get in contact with them and that they like they're supposed to be neo it's funny you say that i had three guys in school growing up they were in like uh, I was in year seven, they were in the top year, who would walk around in those ridiculously long leather coats, dressed like the fucking Matrix, um, act like the Matrix. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely believe it's a thing. No, yeah. but not for me. Well, they were quite stylish, those coats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were. They were, yeah, just, just like floor length, leather, black. Not very comfortable in the summer. But pull out no. the mini machine gun. <laughs> <laughs> how, do we, how do you talk to someone then who thinks they're in the Matrix? So <laughs> I suppose when, when you're doing the assessment, so there's, there's two reasons that you need to talk to somebody in that kind of situation. Number one is the assessment. So the assessment, especially what I do as a forensic psychiatrist is if they've got a mental illness, what are the specific symptoms? And if they've committed violence, are they criminally responsible? So it's, it's a kind of a weird situation because as I was saying before, you can't really be agreeing with them or encouraging them because that can just make them worse. Uh, but at the same time, there's no point in arguing with them because they're not going to believe you. If they're truly delusional, you're literally wasting your breath. So it's a kind of, you're in the situation where you're trying to extract as much information as you can. I don't know if tricking is the right word, but you're certainly enticing them to, to share as much as they can without encouraging, without disagreeing. So it's more of an inquisitive, like, can you tell me more about this? This must make you feel like this. Have you considered what would you do? You know, so one of the things I have to decide is whether they're risky and whether they might commit further violence so i would ask them a question like i understand that you believe you're in the matrix so if you believe that somebody was like an agent or somebody to come and harm you how would you react to that so i'm looking for whether they're going to say uh you know i'd be really annoyed and i'd run away or if they were going to say something like well i'll get my knife and stab them and obviously the second one puts them in a very dangerous potential category i mean what sort of things do they say uh so they everything uh, running anything, away from everything. that main agent yeah. what was his name <laughs> that main agent that? agent smith agent smith oh he was creepy wasn't he mr anderson mr anderson <laughs> <laughs> oh brilliant but the other the other element that's that's necessary for that kind of assessment is to see if people are getting better so the initial assessment decide it's important to decide whether they're criminally responsible whether they go to prison or or a psychiatric unit if they go to psychiatric unit what type low medium high secure so high secure like broadmoor as, as you'd imagine there's only a limited number of beds so they have to be of a certain degree of danger to actually get in through the gates uh, but also to see whether they're getting better or not so that's why it's important to have that conversation over and over again so you give them medication and then every few weeks you have to and you have to try and do it subtly because if you go like i'm the doctor i think you're crazy tell me about the matrix then obviously they're not gonna they're not gonna reveal their thoughts so you have to kind of 
sort of entice it out of them by being sort of friendly and inquisitive to see how fixed their beliefs are and you challenge their beliefs. So you say like, you know, three weeks ago you said that you believed that you were, you were in the matrix and you believe that these people out here were trying to kill you. How do you feel about that now? And if they mention individuals, you just kind of explore what their intentions and their thoughts are to see whether they're getting better. Imagine if like at medication time, you brought them like a blue pill and a red pill. (laughs) 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 The brains would just go. (laughs) I think most antipsychotics are white. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So next we've got a hostage situation. Uh, Yeah, I thought. Which was you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You got taken hostage. Yeah, so I thought that might be interesting for you and your viewers. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't like a, I should make this clear, it wasn't like a host, gun to my head, I need a helicopter kind of hostage. It was more of a, we weren't allowed to leave the room. So it was uh, during a ward round. What what year, what prison? Uh, so this was, in, it was a medium secure unit in East London and it would have been 2012, I believe. So yeah, quite a while ago. So I was a registrar, which is a middle grade psychiatrist. So consultants at the top, registrar, then, then house officer. Uh, and it was a young man who was potentially quite dangerous. So he was in, in there for a, an alleged, um, sexual assault charge. Uh, he uh, apparently assaulted somebody, a random stranger at a party, although the charges later got dropped. Uh, but he had schizophrenia and he was becoming quite psychotic. And also he was a semi-professional MMA fighter. So he was quite young. I think he was only 19 or, or so, but he was on his way to becoming like a proper cage fighter. So obviously potentially quite dangerous, like a really big sort of imposing guy. Um, and he was psychotic and we treated him with lots of different medications and nothing was really working. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes you have to trial three or four different types before you find one that works. And each time it takes four to six weeks. Uh, and his brother died quite randomly and quite quickly from cancer. And he, in his, we told him this in, in the morning in the ward round. So ward rounds, a bit like getting hospital. So you, the patient comes in the room and then you have like a couple of doctors, the consultant, the nurses, the social worker, blah, 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 sit around. They discuss the progress and when we t- we had to break this news to him and it all happened very quickly like his brother became ill within the space of a couple of months so there's very little sort of warning signs uh, and in his psychotic state he was convinced that we had somehow killed his brother so he's standing up there and he's standing next to the door and he was like trying to you could see he, like, he was really struggling to process the information and he would and he kept asking questions like why did you do it or what did you give him so he was obviously you know accusing us and then we had to sort of calm him down and then he didn't he didn't actually physically hurt anybody but he was like towering over us and he had his like fists uh, clenched and he seemed to for some random reason really transfix on the social worker on our team and there's no particular reason he just saw him and um the social worker was black and he's making all these really racist comments towards him uh, but it, and it, it, you could tell he was confused because people would calm him down and then he kind of apologized for a bit and sort of shake his head and sort of say sorry sorry and sit down and then within seconds he just stand up again and, and like we were probably in the room for about a good 45 minutes asking him to leave and just saying, look, you're, you're, um, Johnny is what I call him in my book. Johnny, you're obviously unwell. And I know this is a shock. I think you need to sort of process it. I think you should go and sit down. And he would kind of agree. And then he would start to walk out and then he'd turn around and sort of tower over us. And he was a scary dude. Like he was, you know, huge and, and obviously a fighter. Um, and it was weird for me because I, I'd literally just joined that team. So we changed placements every six months. So I'd never actually met him before, even though I knew his case. It's the first time I'd ever met him. So I didn't know whether I could speak to him or not because it's not like, I'm not like the, the doctor who'd known him for years who, who has some sort of relationship with him and he's already really paranoid. So if some, and he, he could see me, but he wasn't really, he was kind of ignoring me, but I didn't know whether to speak up or not. But eventually the social worker pulled the alarm. So all the, all the, the emergency nursing team came, came running in um, and it could have kicked off massively, but they managed to convince him to calm down and go to the seclusion room. I mean, what sort of treatment do you give someone like that? 
So in the long term, you treat them with antipsychotics. And sometimes, as I said, you have to cycle through different um, medications. For somebody who's that agitated acutely, you can give them a sedative. So if they'll take a tablet, you can give them something like lorazepam, which is a, a strong benzodiazepine. Uh, but it, again, it takes like, half an hour or so to work so there's like still a half an hour period where they where they could still be violent and you can you can inject them with similar kind of medications uh un um unlike what is what they show they depict in in tv in films and stuff they they don't work instantly so in your film you inject them and then they they sort of almost faint within seconds that that doesn't happen in real life it takes at least sort of 10 minutes to get into the bloodstream so even with the most agitated patients when you inject them with strong sedatives there's minimum a 10 minute window before any of it kicks in and so if they're if they're extremely violent then they can cause a lot of damage within those 10 minutes so you're able to determine what led to that mental state was drugs alcohol involved things like that uh, for that particular case, yeah. for that particular case, I mean, he had a, fa- a long family history of schizophrenia. So his, his father was also in and out of institute. So I'm sure a big component for Johnny was genetics. Uh, and I think drug use was also part of his history, but he was still psychotic in hospital months after, uh, after being in, in hospital for months. So presumably he didn't have access to drugs within those months. So I think drug use might have triggered it, but I think there's a, an underlying psychosis behind it all. So what is your theory then of the disappearance of Madeleine McCann? <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> so I, 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 I just wanted to talk about this just because I've, I've researched it a little bit because I've asked on another podcast to give my kind of psychological theories. I suppose what makes this different from other cases that I assess and talk about like on my channel is that there's no known perpetrator. So you can't really psychoanalyze the perpetrator. But what I do think is interesting is the theory that the parents were somehow involved in it. I personally don't believe that theory. Um, I, th- I suppose, I mean, they're both doctors. Uh, that in itself is not a protective factor, is it, when you look at someone like Hal Shipman? But I would argue that Hal Shipman was kind of a bit of an oddball, isolated, withdrawn, just a, 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 an odd, bizarre man, whereas the McCanns were, before this all happened, like normal, sociable people. So I, I personally don't think it's them, because if it was them, then why would they do it in a foreign country? So, surely there's so many, if they were doing it intentionally, there's so many kind of unknowns and, and variables that you can't, you can't prepare for there is a theory that it might have happened accidentally because i think they they sedated a couple of their kids because they basically wanted them to sleep so they could go and have their dinner um and there is that a fact or is that an allegation I that think, they sedated yeah, their kids? Like something i've read i'm not 100 percent sure i don't want to say something that's incorrect let's just say they allegedly yeah okay fair okay. enough sorry they allegedly yeah. i think they found um the sedatives within the bloodstream or it's alleged of the other, okay. other kids um so in theory, it could be that they over-sedated her and she ended up dying by accident. But again, I, I personally don't believe that because um, for one of them to, to, for this to have all happened and them to go to dinner with all these other people, for, for oh, one of them to, to to be like complete psychopaths to the degree they don't react is is unlikely. But for both of them to be able to do that, it just it doesn't make sense to me. No. Plus, like if that did happen, presumably there'd have been some commotion initially when they tried to resuscitate her because they wouldn't have just decided immediately let's cover this up. They would have been like a bit of uh, a fracas of deciding what to do. So it doesn't sit right to me. But um, I think that what, I, I don't want to be sort of victim shaming in any way at all, but I think it's, there's no, argue, you can't really argue that what they did wasn't irresponsible. It was completely irresponsible. You know, yeah, like, going for dinner and leaving your kids alone. Yeah, yeah, I've got kids and I can understand, and I've, I've met up with mates in, in big house parties and had them asleep and, and it's quite a relief especially when the kids are young to just just have the freedom so I can get why they'd want to do that but every time I've done it, it's been an inside a, a locked house where nobody else can get access to and they're literally you know upstairs whereas what the McCanns did 
it was in a foreign country and there were reports of these like dodgy men uh, being around before like asking for money and just uh, I think they were kicked out by the resort staff so it was I just think it's quite a, a, a dodgy situation to be leaving your kids uh, in a room which is unlocked um, one thing that I, I thought was quite interesting about the case was that a lot of people are saying that because they didn't seem guilty or they didn't seem um, distressed enough that in itself yeah, is proof they might have something to do with it. sad because they were basically saying the media shamed them and saying they weren't crying enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think so who do you think did take Madeleine McGann? I think that's uh, ridiculous. I, I, don't, I don't have the answer to that, I'm afraid. I think it, if I had to, my best speculation would be one of the dodgy men that were around before. So there were dodgy men around asking for money. There's rumours that some of them are connected to some sort of criminal gang. So I think the most likely explanation is that she was probably trafficked. But I do think it's really unfair to to blame the parents for not being emotional enough because nobody knows how you're going to be, react in that kind of situation. And sometimes it just takes a, a while for reality to settle in. And like some people are just stoic and some people just because they're not, just because they don't outwardly seem distressed doesn't mean that they're not going through turmoil. And I, I think they were probably stunned. Like to, for what for their daughter to disappear, obviously that in itself is pretty uh, mind-blowing. And then that's in a foreign country then you're a suspect and there's media around you. I suppose the point I'm trying to make is I don't think anybody can judge and say they didn't act in the right way. Mm. And I, what that really reminds me about is the case of Amanda Knox. So if you remember in, I think it was 2007, she got accused of killing her flatmate, Meredith Kirchner, I think yes. his name. And everybody was convinced that she was guilty because that she didn't seem distressed enough or upset enough or um, trauma, traumatized enough. And people were absolutely convinced and she was you know, arrested on, on um in police custody for a long time then eventually they found the real culprit through fingerprints and then afterwards everyone was like oh you know accepted that she's innocent but she was acting a little bit bizarrely in the police station amanda knox she was kind of you know doing yoga and 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 she was seen sort of she's photographed smiling and joking with a boyfriend but my point is is that doesn't mean that she wasn't distressed it's just, just people like people can can giggle or laugh when they're sort of embarrassed or they're awkward or they 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 feel upset i don't think you can you can predict what anybody should react like in extreme trauma so you've got all these kids disappearing all the time tragically none has had the spotlight on them like the madeline mccann case what separates this case from all the other cases that you know this is a daily thing yeah why is there so much focus on it that's a good question i I think there's there's probably quite a few different factors i think the fact that she's white and middle class compared to I think it like uh, something that might happen in more deprived areas. So I'm sure around that time there was uh, another case, I can't remember the name, of a, of a, a young black girl that went disappearing in London and got nowhere near as much as media attention. I think her parents have really um, continued their their efforts to, to try and keep attention on it and to promote it. So they never gave up really. They were just like constantly trying to put it into the um, the attention of the media and i don't know i suppose it's just it's a bit like something going viral isn't it sometimes these cases are not necessarily that unique but they just stay in the public consciousness and i don't think there's we really know why or how some videos become viral versus others and i think it's a bit like that this case it just because they were getting loads of funding weren't they and i think that's why obviously the shannon matthews case happened is because obviously they were trying to do the same thing and get the pennies yeah yeah and i suppose even just with the the parents being accused of being involved in it which i I don't believe is true but i think it's just it just puts another twist in the tail and people like true crime and they like things that are are uncertain and have like different conspiracy theories i guess 
Have you watched the various documentaries on the McCann case? Uh, I did years ago, after, uh, shortly after it happened, but not recently, not in the last Did you watch that one where they brought the investigators in and they unearthed that ring? And that, even though they hadn't found Madeline, they found loads of other kids and they had to contact the parents and say, look, your kid was advertised on this website, basically. Here's what's happened. Right, yeah, did did you see that one? No, no, I didn't see it. Oh, my goodness, yeah. It was, it was heartbreaking. I can't remember. I must have watched that one. About four or five years ago now. I can't remember which one it was. Um, so they'd, they'd taken those children already, are you saying? And then so in the, in the, they brought these investigators in to try and unearth what had happened to Madeleine McCann. They didn't unearth what had happened to Madeleine, but they did unearth this massive European ring. Yeah. And they were advertising kids on the web. So they'd they already taken that. They'd, they'd already been, but were missing. So this is where. That those photos ended up, the investigators found them and had to contact the parents and say, Look, here's where your kids ended up. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, how did, did they manage to rescue some of those kids then? No, they were gone. They were gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How um, old were they? Just little kids. Yeah, yeah. Just That's terrifying. Sold, sold on to these people. So, we've had, I think it was Mark Williams Thomas came on and he believed that in the abduction theory David I believed in the abduction theory and he believed that she is deceased Madeline because of the abduction the abuse and then whatever happens next and then they terminate the, the, the victim do you think that, um, there's any chance that she will ever be found here's a message from our sponsor so Jen have you ever like signed up for a gym or something or other and then they just keep taking this money out of your bank yes it's really really frustrating um you know if you want to cancel you want to cancel straight away do you know why free trials renew without your consent it's something that drives me mad absolutely mental of course it's a business scam out to get you (laughs) don't let greedy corporations pocket your money Download Truebill to take care of your subscriptions. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions. That you don't need, want or simply forget about. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. Which is approximately 500 quid. (laughs) (laughs) Because these damn companies make it hard to cancel your subscriptions. Truebill makes it incredibly easy to cancel just link your accounts and truebill will make it easy to cancel your subscriptions in one tap and your truebill concierge is there for when you want to cancel any unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to stay on top of your spending with truebill get an effortless breakdown of your finances to see where your money is going and how to improve Truebill will notify you of important events that need your attention so you're never caught off guard again. Like Jennifer B, who says, With your help, our family has saved $587 this year on unnecessary subscriptions. I really didn't understand how Truebill could help me until we decided to save for a very large home purchase. So don't fall for subscription scams. Start cancelling today at truebill.com forward slash Sean S-H-A-U-N So go right now to truebill.com forward slash Sean
It could save you thousands per year. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. It's very important for the podcast production. And the links, as usual, are in the description box below this video. Um, it's a really difficult question to answer. I think I, I, I wouldn't um, profess to, to know as much about the case as, as your other guests who've obviously looked into it. But just logically speaking and trying to take emotion out of it, I would have personally thought that if she was going to be found, it would have happened by now. Yeah. So Especially I think, with the eye thing. Yeah. So if it's if if she's not been found for such a long period of time, I don't see how things are suddenly going to change now. And and um, how far away were the parents when she was abducted? Um, I think it was a couple of hundred yards. So yeah, it was in the in same complex. It was in a restaurant in the complex, but I believe the the, the actual villa was like on the other side of the complex. So could you expand on the dodgy people that were seen in the area? Uh, that's all I know, uh, really, is that there was uh, there was a few people, they were begging for money, and I think, I'm trying to remember this now, it's all from memory, I think one of them even made some inappropriate comments towards another young girl or um, was inappropriately hanging around the area of another young girl in that resort on on the day before the night that she disappeared. Uh, and then the either people were making complaints or the staff themselves felt uncomfortable and they asked these people to leave. But for me, just the existence of that would make me feel quite uncomfortable with my family being there. And I certainly exactly. wouldn't be leaving my kids alone. Did they make any arrests of suspects at the time? Um, I don't know any more details, <laughs> I'm afraid, Sean. They did have a suspect, didn't they? And they took him in, but he had no He was completely innocent, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what, why they pulled him in now. Because he looked dodgy. It was. But he had something to do with the with them. Yeah. Have you guys seen any of these McCann documentaries? No. Have you seen um, the Netflix one? Who were the suspects that they pulled in? The German guy. Yes, the German guy. It wasn't the guy who made a website or something. It was a web guy, a younger guy. Yeah. He helped in the search. That's it. Yeah. You are a fountain of knowledge today, mate. So what What about the lead detective, Dan? He, uh, didn't he write a book on it and stuff? Uh, I don't know, very John. Okay. He did. Yeah, yeah. Because he, but didn't he, he was... Um, Blaming the parents, I think, wasn't he the lead detective? That's the whole other side of it. Yeah. Yeah. So... Robert Wardsley. What's that? You're writing we'll, we'll, we'll so go bad. There. We'll go there at the end. We're going to go to Savile after we've done these ones. Robert Wardsley. Wardsley, yeah. I'm going to read through my notes if you don't mind, Sean, because I've got some yeah, stuff please I do. want to talk about. Um, and all the links for Jen's organic cotton clothing. And Dr. Das's YouTube channel. Come on, let's help him get up to 20,000 followers here. He's oh, almost there. <laughs> 20,000? No, 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 13.7 now. But We're going to help him get to 20,000. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a bit of background about Robert Maudsley, and then I'm going to tell you my psychoanalysis of him because I think he's a really interesting character. Yes, so he is an English serial killer who went to Broadmoor Hospital. He murdered four people in the 70s. And what's quite unique about his case is that one of them was out in the community and three of them were after he was locked up. So one was in, of those three, one was in Broadmoor and one was in uh, HMP Wakefield. So his first victim was a man called John Farrell in Wood Green in 1974. And Maudsley was working as a sex worker at the time. And this man showed him some pictures of children that he'd abused. And then straight afterwards, Maudsley grotted him to death. 
And I think there's a reason for that, which I'll come back on to. And then Maudsley himself turned himself into the police and said that he needed psychiatric care and he was found unfit to plead. And then he went to Broadmoor. And then whilst he was in Broadmoor, he killed a child molester in 1977. So Maudsley and someone else locked themselves in with this child molester called David Francis. And they tortured him for over nine hours and then eventually killed him. And then he was convicted of, of manslaughter and sent to Wakefield Prison. Um, and that's quite interesting in itself, which I can come back to about why he was first deemed not fit to plead and sent to Broadmoor, which is a hospital, and then later sent to prison within a short space of time. It doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Uh, and then in 1978, Maudsley killed two fellow prisoners in the same day. One was Salney Darwood, who was convicted of manslaughter of his own wife. And he invited him to a cell, garroted and stabbed him, hid his body under his bed. And then he tried to lure in other prisoners, but they said no. And then he found a second victim called Bill Roberts, who and he hacked his skull with a makeshift dagger, <coughs> struck his head against the wall. And that man was serving seven years for um, a sexual assault of a seven-year-old girl. And then he walked to the prison officer's room, placed the dagger on the table, and he said that the next roll call would be two people short, which is pretty gangster. Um, and then... In 1983, he was, he was deemed too dangerous for a normal cell. So there's, he's been, there's a special unit in a basement in Wakefield Prison, which is where he is right now. That's, he's still alive. Yeah. Didn't he try and eat one of them or eat the brains of one of them or something? Uh, or am I getting no, mixed up? No, I think that's something else. Uh, so what's interesting for me about Robert Worsley's case, uh, I think that it's all connected to his background. So I'm going to guess that he was a victim of a peanut. Yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So that was only one thing. So he was one of 12 children. Then his parents uh, gave him up for care. So he was sent to a Catholic orphanage. Then he was taken back by his parents when he was eight years old. Then he's physically abused by his parents. Then after that, he was a victim of a, of a peanut, as you say. Uh, and he became like a drug addict and a sex worker. So the, men the reason I'm mentioning all of this is because I think it all ties in with his psychoanalysis. So I think he must have had this huge inferiority complex. So uh, his core belief was, I'm not lovable. Nobody loves me. Then he gets this like really mixed, inconsistent message about love and support from his parents. So, so he's rejected, then accepted, then abused, then rejected again. And then he becomes like what I imagine in, from his perspective is like one of the dregs of society. So, you know, his sexuality, <coughs> being a sex worker, being a druggie. So I think this all added to his huge inferiority complex. And the reason I think this is all relevant is because I think that it reflects on his victims. So he intentionally, like the first person he killed was a um, a peanut. And of the other three, another two of them were also peanuts. And one was a, uh, killed his wife. So I think that because he sees it, because of this inferiority complex and because he sees himself as like the, the, the bottom of society, these are one of the only few people that he's allowed to judge from his own perspective. So his morality in his mind is uh, more secure and more solid than those people have done more horrible things. So I think that explains why he picked his victims. And, and some people even kind of see him as a hero, to be honest, because... Of what well, yeah, he's on a crusade, isn't he? Against people who harm women and kids. Yeah. yeah. Which, under the convict code, is an admirable thing. Yeah. So he's still in Wakefield now, in yeah. the basement. Yeah. On his own. I have to write to him. <laughs> so next up, that'd be interesting to get a letter from him, wouldn't it? What? What would you ask him? I just ask him if he's ever thought about getting his story out there, because I think it's fascinating. Because when you look at serial killers, 
quite often they're victims of sex workers. Yeah. But this is the opposite, isn't it? Yeah. And the fact that he's on, in his head, is a noble crusade against people who harm women and kids. I think it's got something that the public would be really fascinated by the aspect and a lot of people would say he's a hero, yeah. even though he's a serial killer. Yeah. Is, yeah. Does, he, is, does he qualify for serial killer status? Well, I, th- I think it depends how you define it. I think for to be a serial killer, you have to kill at least three people in different times at different contexts. And it's usually because there's some sort of like uh, compulsive urge or sexual urge. So I think if you define it like that, then I suppose he's technically not really a serial killer. So what's he like? A not a spree? What is it? It's just a, yeah, like a multiple murderer. Multiple murderer, yeah. multiple homicides. Yeah. Right. But what makes him quite unique is that he killed of his four victims. He killed three of them whilst being detained, which is very unusual. Yeah. So what kind of uh, sentences would he have then? Just life, never getting yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. But what I think is quite interesting about his case is that the very fact that he was sent to Broadmoor means that at some point they thought, because he, he did like hear voices at times and he, he did have like depression and suicide attempts. So I think he was, did have some elements of mental illness. But what's interesting about his case is that he was very first sent to Broadmoor because he's unfit to plead. And that threshold is quite high. You have to be pretty unwell to, to be found unfit to plead. Uh, so you're not even well enough to understand your court case to enter a plea of guilty versus not guilty. So you could barely make most decisions, I'd say. Like you wouldn't have the capacity to make most decisions. But then after the first killing in Broadmoor, in, within a short period of time, he's deemed fit to plead because he was sent to prison. Uh, and it's possible that somebody could be, be that unwell and be, as it's about a year, I think, altogether, that their mental state can improve in a year. It's possible, but it's quite unlikely. I think there's a, and this is speculation, but I think there's a chance that it might have been a political decision rather than a like a clinical one. So they might have thought this guy's an absolute handful. He's too dangerous to be here. And we can't have people killing other patients in Broadmoor and, and not be seen to be doing something about it. So, let's... Is he a powerful guy physically? I don't think so. No, I've seen pictures of him. He looks fairly average, I would say. He must be yeah. getting on a bit now. Yeah. So next we've got H.H. Holmes. Uh, yeah. Can I hear about... I don't have a clue who that is. Um, again, I'm reading through my notes, if that's all right. So yeah. I'll tell you a bit about his background, then I'll tell you my thoughts. So he's actually born Herman Mudgett. And he's born in, 19, in 1861, so this is a long time ago in um, in Pennsylvania. And he's thought of, he's a, he was a con artist, but he's, he's thought of as being America's first known serial killer. And he confessed to 27 murders initially, although uh, afterwards he confessed to 130 in total. So he's born into a wealthy family, and he was actually quite highly intelligent initially. Um, he was interested in medicine, and he used to trap animals and perform surgery on them. So that's. A lot of serial killers start by killing animals, don't they? Yeah, so there used to be this this theory, this sort of triad of torturing animals, um, wetting the bed and starting fires. That There used to be a theory that that predicts when people become serial killers, uh, but it's actually not true. So they've done studies that, that, that shows that people are disturbed, but there's no higher incidence of them going on to being serial killers. Uh, but it certainly shows that they're psychologically disturbed right if you're doing those kind of things uh so he went to medical school actually and he was a mediocre student but he didn't graduate because there'd been accusations of him uh, uh, of from a female that he was making false promises of marriage to her uh then he moved to chicago in 1886 and he got this pseudonym of hh holmes so he's known as as holmes even though his, his name's his actual birth name is mudget and he started killing people regularly in order to steal their property so what he would do is he would seduce women, um, become engaged to them and then kill them and take their life savings. 
and he even had people working for him and he would get them to get out life insurance policy and ended up killing them so he was he was like really really sort of quite cunning and manipulative i think uh, and the other thing that really stands out about him is he had this property that was found out after his arrest called, which is known as murder castle so he had this like mansion that had these secret passages and trap doors and soundproof rooms and like rooms that could be locked from the outside and even like kilns to cremate bodies so this is something that obviously took a lot of pleasure and, and thought and organization into his uh, into his actions and then there's another twist of this is that he had this good friend called ben pietzel and they started committing fraud together so they defrauded an insurance company by faking pietzel's death uh, and they traveled around the the states together and i think we have to remember that this is like in the 1800s so it's a lot easier to change your identity and to kind of disappear and you can't be tracked as easily with the police but he ended up killing his own co-defendant uh, for the money. So he killed Pietzel, I guess even worse, uh, convinced his widow that she was that he was still alive uh, and got more money off her. And then he killed three of the kids because they started asking too many questions. So Pietzel had five children and he killed three of them. And then eventually he was caught for insurance scam in Boston and he was sentenced to death by hanging. Uh, and apparently even up until minutes before he was about to be hanged, he was like, completely calm and didn't show any kind of emotion or like fear at all wow bloody hell so he's a bit of a swindler yeah yeah, yeah. So that's the background then uh, i think we had a movie about holmes uh, there needs to be one yeah maybe we should make one <laughs> <laughs> wow um, well, i don't know why he didn't call it murder mansion instead of murder castle yeah maybe it's more looks more like a castle than a mansion i don't, I don't know uh, but so what I think is interesting about him is that a bit like the uh, Robert Maudsley, he is he is technically a serial killer, but he's very different from other serial killers because most serial killers have like what I was talking about before, this bloodlust and this urge and this craze. Uh, and it can be quite traumatic. Uh, I don't know if traumatic is the right word, but it's quite uncomfortable for them. So this rage sort of builds and builds and builds and they can only relieve it by going out and killing somebody. What I think is different about Holmes is... I would even class him as a con artist who kills rather than a serial killer. So he just got rid of anybody who's inconvenient. Like if anybody knew too much or if there was some financial motive, like a life insurance or if he's, if he's engaged to them to get rid of him, he just did that. So it's very, his motivations, I guess, is, is very different. Very calculated. Yeah. Did you say he came from a wealthy family though? Yeah. What yeah, did he need the money he for then? Um, I, I think he, because he failed at medical school. So I think he just, yeah. Yeah. And probably greed. Yeah, as well. Everyone and the other thing that, more, really, don't they? that really stands out about me is his absolute lack of empathy. So you could argue that most serial killers do have a lack of empathy. I think that's fair to say. But he killed like his best, like his best friend. He killed a number of partners, romantic partners. There's, um, I think he killed some childhood friends as well. So he like he really didn't give a shit about anybody. He just had this astounding lack of. Uh, of sympathy yeah. he wouldn't want a friend like that I was saying no don't swipe him on Tinder no <laughs> so we got the uh, your writing's terrible Sean Washington DC sniper case yeah. sniper case so again I'm just going to read out a bit of background for that is that meant to be an R it is <laughs> so do you, do you remember reading about no. the Washington DC vaguely yeah. I'm, it's going to come back to you when you yeah. say it there wasn't the two of them yeah 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 that's right yeah. going round in the car yeah 
That's exactly right. So it's also known as the Belt Beltway Sniper Attacks. So they this occurred in a three week period in October two thousand and two, and they killed ten people and they wounded three. But actually, they found out afterwards that they'd started earlier and did did more killings over a longer period of time. So they started in February two thousand and two, and they killed about seventeen people altogether. But they just happened to sort of stop for a bit and then do a cluster in DC. Um, and they were John Allen Muhammad, who was age forty one at the time. And Lee Boyd Malvo, who was 17, and they were in a sexual relationship as well. And Mohammed was a Gulf War veteran. So they were traveling around in a blue 1990 Chevrolet Caprice when they were committing their, their crimes. And eventually they got caught in October 2002 because they were found asleep, asleep in their car. And I think what had happened is that they were, the police had tracked this one vehicle and they got the registration out to the public because it happened to be in the vicinity when these random people were being uh, sniped and so they're sleeping in the car and then the, the police got a, a call from a member of the public saying we've seen this registration plate and then the old one Muhammad was sentenced to death in September 2003 and was, was uh, killed in November 2009 and Malvo the juvenile who's still alive was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences um, so what I think is quite interesting about this case is that according to Malvo so according to the younger one uh, Muhammad was furious at losing custody of his three kids. So he said that his kind of motivation was just to rebel against the American government. But there's also a theory, although it did get dismissed by the judge, that um, so he'd, he'd been separated from his wife and his wife didn't give him access to their three kids. So there's a theory that he was killing random people around the area where she lived so that he could eventually kill her. And he wouldn't be a suspect because her death would be like lost among all these random people. Wow. And if that is true, then uh, I think that again, it just shows a, a atrocious lack of, of care for human life and lack of empathy. Uh, the other thing is that Malvo, the younger one, when he was imprisoned, he was writing these really weird kind of diatribes against the for jihad against the United States. Uh, he he would rant and he would draw and he would talk about people like Osama bin Laden. Saddam Hussein and the Matrix. So this is this is what really stood Back out to for the me. Matrix. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there was no evidence to suggest that he was psychotic, but I wonder whether he might have been psychotic actually, and I wonder whether the crimes were so heinous that nobody wanted to even suggest or investigate that he might have a mental illness because they didn't want to to be seen to give him like a soft option of like trying to rehabilitate him. And I, I can't say without assessing him whether he was psychotic, but I think there's enough grounds to at least be suspicious. So if it was up to me, I would have investigated him and I would have tried to get to the crux of why he was talking about Osama bin Laden and, and the matrix. Like, is, is he just inspired by, by that person in that film? In which case there's no mental illness and he is culpable. Or does he feel like he's connected to them in any way? Like he gets messages from them or if he's got like delusional beliefs that he's on a mission or, or was involved in the Matrix, like I've said, I've seen that quite a few times. So was one of them the driver and one of them the shooter? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Mohammed trained the younger one, Malvo, into, into how to shoot. Yeah. And the other thing I think is interesting about the case is, is you've got to question the dynamics if one's 41 and one's 17 years old. So the age of criminal responsibility in Washington is the same as the UK, so that's 10. So I, I don't think anybody can question whether the 17-year-old Malvo was responsible i think he was responsible but despite being responsible i also question whether he was like brainwashed or quite vulnerable because to be 17 and to have like theories of or uh, wants to jihad against the government and to have all this hatred it's quite a young age you've not had any life experiences at that age have you so you got to wonder what, how much he was sort of brainwashed by by muhammad 
And what was their fate? So Muhammad was sentenced to death and he died in 2009 and Malvo serving six consecutive life sentences. So I suppose the question is, is like, if, if he was psychotic, if, um, if my suspicion is right, what would you do? Because he's never going to be released. He's too dangerous to be released. So would you bother rehabilitating him? Like, is like, there's a humanitarian argument, which is that if he's suffering from symptoms, you can treat those symptoms. But then there's kind of the crimin- criminalistic kind of argument, which is that what he did was so heinous that he doesn't deserve any rehabilitation. BTK killer. Yeah, so that's another one on the list. So have you guys heard of BTK? Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, Who's that? I'll, t- I'll tell you now and then I'll tell you <laughs> <laughs> my psychoanalysis. Thank so his you. name is Dennis Radar. And he was born in March 1945 in, in Kansas. And he's American serial killer who kill, who murdered 10 people. But what's unique about him is he did it over the span of uh, like three decades. And he eventually got arrested and confessed in 2005. And he called himself BTK because he wanted, to, he would bind, torture and kill his victims. And he would taunt the police, which I think is part of his sort of psychoanalysis. So he claimed as a youth he killed animals and he developed violent sexual fantasies that involved bondage. Uh, he worked in the Air Force. He was married and he had two kids. And he did a number of jobs, worked at a factory, a security company, compliance officer. He was quite active in his church and he was like a, a Boy Scout leader. So on the surface, he was like quite a, a productive pillar of the community, really. Um, studied criminal justice at university, which I think is probably uh, relevant. So his first murder was January 1974. It's, he strangled four family members, including two children. Uh, and then semen was found at the scene even though the victims hadn't been sexually abused and that eventually was how he got caught but what i think is quite unique about him is that he would take like souvenirs like underwear and um watches etc from some of his victims um he in 1974 he targeted another 21 year old woman went inside her her house and fatally stabbed her and then he would send these messages out to the police and he'd say the code words for me would be um, bind torture kill the next two decades, he killed five more women and his, his sixth victim strangled in March 1977 when he'd locked their, her three young kids in, in the bathroom. Uh, and he actually grew irritated by the lack of media coverage. So he wrote in a letter to a local TV station saying, how many people do I have to kill before I get my name in the papers? Yeah. 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 Um, and I've got some other details of other killings, but I'll, I'll get through those. And So he got caught because... There were, there was like a bit of a gap between his killings and the media were suggesting that, that whoever he was had either died or was arrested. And he took umbrage to this because he wanted the notoriety. So he wrote to the police. He would write in, in the back of cereal boxes. So he wrote to the police, uh, proving that he was a killer because he knew some intimate details. And I think he might have even sent like, um, a copy of the driving license of one of his victims that he'd taken. Uh, and, the reason he got caught is because he sent them a flop, the police a floppy disk and they managed to trace it back to the church where he was like the president of the congregation oh, and they, they matched his DNA to the, to the semen at the first, at the first crime screen. So it was a sexual. So yeah. So what, what I think is quite, that, that makes him really stand out is this, is that his usually serial killers, as I was saying before, they have this like, this frenzied, sometimes sexual urge to kill. And I think he managed to, um, to placate it to a degree by masturbating. So he would take all of these, all of these, uh, objects, these souvenirs from the crime scenes. And he even said, said this later on in his, conf- his confession because he wanked over them. He's, he managed to kind of put away his urges or his addictions for weeks or months at a time. And that's why he managed to make it sort of last so long. 
But what really stands out to me is his just his degree of narcissism. I think you could probably argue that most serial killers have some sort of degree, especially organized uh, serial killers have some degree of narcissism. But for him, he, he, he was his downfall. Like he could have actually gotten away with it. He could have gotten away with killing more than 10 people, but because his ego was, was, uh, was so large, he wanted recognition for it. Like the serpent. Yeah. 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 Returning back to. Totally got away with it. Yeah. Yeah. Why do they write into the police? Is it an ego thing? Uh, I think it is an ego thing. So I think it is all about sort of power and taunting. Like he thinks, there's a few serial killers that have done this. He thinks that he's so untouchable and so clever that to him it's a bit of a game. And he wants a degree of respect. And I think people like like him, they they differentiate being infamous from being famous. So they want what they see as the, the glory and the attention, but they completely com- compartmentalize the, the horrific evil things that they've done no. so even when like afterwards after he's arrested when reporters would write in to ask him questions he would like write pages and pages about himself like these really detailed letters he was just so up himself so narcissistic and so egotistical yeah so jimmy savile next <laughs> and we've got our documentary out if you want to watch the uncensored version with david i i'll put the link in the description box We've got lots of David I content that we can't put on this platform regarding Savile. And I imagine many of you have seen the Netflix documentary and we've also got the BBC documentary coming out. Yeah. So yeah, Jimmy Savile. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you what I think of Jimmy Faz- Savile. Forget- forgive me fans to look at my notes a little bit. So um, what I think is quite interesting about him is that his mother was apparently quite cold towards him in his earlier years and also he lived in poverty and deprivation. I think there are other things from his background that are relevant. So his nephew was also charged with sexual abuse. Did you Did you know about that? No. So I wonder, and again, this is a degree of speculation, but I wonder whether there was something that was happening in that family because to have like one sexual abuse, especially as prolific as him, is very unusual. But for there to be two, I wonder whether there was some like abuse going on when they were children themselves. The other thing about him is his general attitude towards women. So he had no interest in relationships or marriage and he had no kind of warm or empathetic situations or scenarios or relationships with children. So it's almost to me like he saw women as, as objects rather than as equals. And the other thing that makes him quite unusual is that he had this really wide range of victims. So even though most of his victims were young girls, he committed offences against both males and females, committed offences against young to old people. I think his oldest victim was 75. And there's even accusations of necrophilia. So what that says to me is that his deprived acts are not just about um, like sexual satisfaction. To me, it's all about more about power, control and dominance. Because because if if it was for a sexual proclivity, then you'd expect him to to go after a certain you know type of person, and the fact that he he did it for so many different people. Um, and again, another something else that adds to that theory is that he would like French. Sometimes he'd French. He'd forcibly French kiss women. Uh, sometimes in front of other women, without any kind of you know uh, further sexual assault, without orgasm. So again, that's not to get rid of a sexual urge. That is about showing his power and his dominance over people. And I think that what strikes me is that he's got lots of different personas. So he is like this, a DJ, he's a philanthropist, uh, he's a sexual predator, as we know, even former wrestler. So 
I think that's relevant for a couple of reasons. First of all, it shows his narcissism that he thinks that he's so sort of important and so interesting that he can create all these different personas and, and kind of it's just a way of getting different forms of attention, I think. And I think that's connected to his underdeveloped sense of shame because he was an oddball and he was quite openly an oddball from the way he dressed to his medallions, to his shell suits. And I guess that shows that he's got like a very low degree of shame really because like he, he doesn't mind being embarrassed whereas most people are a bit self-conscious. He didn't have that about him at all. And in fact, I'd give even further, I'd say that that kind of his quirkiness hid his predatory nature. So when he would, you, you can see this in footage of him and different TV shows who go up to. And, but if and you watch the Louis Vuitton documents, he with him he does look like a predator in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and he's obvious in his fishnet vest. Yeah, but that's that's my point. It's just the way he's acting in it. My point. My, that's yeah. exactly my point. So because he's so quirky and weird, it's hard for anybody to say. Uh, unless they saw what he did he's hiding in plain sight exactly that's exactly what I'm trying to say yeah because he's so weird you can't it's hard to say whether his those tendencies are of a sexual predator obviously his behaviour was but I'm not, I'm not talking about that he's, I'm talking about his, his weird presentation in the string vest whether that's something really dodgy or whether it's just even the Jimmy name Jim will fix it creeps me out no I so think it's I, obvious I think his relationship with his mother is bizarre because he kept her outfits, didn't he? Pressed and everything in his cupboard after she was dead. And he'd go in there and... Put them on. Well, not put them on, but like he said he felt her presence and stuff. That's why he kept the outfits. Yeah. And there was the thing whereby when he was a baby, he got ill. And for a year, they thought he was going to die. And he, his eyes wouldn't close. So he was sleeping with his eyes open. Yeah. And then... They, when he did survive that, he was like the miracle child. Yeah. So he, they heralded him, him as this miracle. Do you think that, that's what would have played into his ego that he, he felt he was exceptional and above everybody else? So it's interesting you say that. As you were saying that, it reminded me of Anders Breivik, you know, the, the Norwegian man that, that ended up doing that shooting. He killed like six or nine people in, in Oslo. Uh, and the reason I, I thought of him is because he had a similar childhood in that he had very mixed messages from his parents. On the one hand, they were cold and detached, like Jimmy Samuel's mother was to him. But on the other hand, they kind of heralded him as this genius child. So I think when you get a situation like that, and I, I should preface this by saying that the vast, vast majority of people who would have that kind of upbringing wouldn't go on to commit any kind of you know violence or, or sexual crimes. It's only a very small portion. But I do think it's probably all interconnected. So I think it goes back to this inferiority complex. So he's got two very mixed messages. His mother's distant and cold and not particularly nice to him at some points in his life, which makes him feel worthless. But at the same time, at other points in, the, in his life, when he's developing his own sort of internalized persona, uh, he's been told that he's amazing, that he's special. So I think some people that are, are, get really confused, so they end up being so fragile in their personalities and their ego that they they kind of over, overcompensate. So I think that's what's going on here. I think he's overcompensating by making this um, really weird, quirky character. And I think the other thing that I um, haven't mentioned yet is, is I think he was enabled by so many people around him. So... All of those things we've already talked about puts makes him sort of primed to become a sexual predator. And then he's enabled by people around him knowing it's going on and sometimes not even just turning a blind eye, but sometimes actively helping him get victims. And connected to that, he has access to victims like almost no other person has. So he's a celebrity that goes around uh, seeing all these vulnerable women and men, but How mostly women. People. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So he's got access to them. He even had keys to Broadmoor. And that is absolutely insane. Like I've worked at Broadmoor and it is 
as it should be, a high secure hospital. Like for staff, for me to get keys took like three or four months. He was dictating the policy. Yeah. Does anyone know his first case? Sorry, say that again. Does anyone know his first case? His, like the first time he ever assaulted somebody? Yeah. Uh, no, I Mark Williams so. Thomas talked about that on the podcast really? with him. Oh, right. We're going to try and get him back on to um, talk about the McCann abdu- his McCann abduction theory. So what was what was Jimmy Samuel's first known case then? Oh, it goes way, way back. Yeah, the, 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 the span of offences is over decades. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember it specifically off the top of my head. Was he quite young? Was Savile quite young? Yeah. I can't remember because he got an early start, didn't he, as a DJ? He was like a trailblazer, really, for yeah. starting discos and, and being a DJ. And that's and he was playing the Beatles before they were even famous, and yeah. that's how they all got in with him. But going back to the death and the traction to corpses then, so he had a near miss in the mines when he was working in the mines, and then he volunteered to work at hospitals where he had access to terminally ill people. So what what was this thing he had, you know, about corpses and death? Do you know, have you looked at that? I've not looked into it, but, you know, sort of answering off the top of my head, I wonder whether that's connected to his very serious illness when he was a child. Mm -hmm. So I wonder whether he's got some sort of preoccupation with death and if it's somehow sort of, in a messily, almost inexplicable way, tied up with sexuality as well. So he certainly went after vulnerable people. We know that usually young girls looking for some sort of you know tv opportunity but hospital patients are another type of vulnerable people aren't they so again it's all about power more than i mean it's tied in with sex i'm not saying it's not but for me power and dominance is more important to jimmy savile than sex is so being able to dominate people who are hospital patients you know near death or vulnerable victims but with the mentally ill was i mean did he abuse them because they might not tell on him. Was it a risk thing? Um, I, I think that Jimmy Savile was so emboldened by what he was doing that I think he didn't care about risk. Because think about it, in, in the Louis through documentary, he even basically sort of insinuated that he was a wrong and wasn't he? He mm. basically almost said that, almost said the words. And and he taunted people by his quirkiness and by his odd behaviour. So in answer to your question, I don't think that the Broadmoor, he, he picked the Broadmoor victims because people wouldn't believe them. I think it was because they were vulnerable and they were locked up and he had easy access to them and it was more of a power thing. Because if if he was so concerned about being caught, he would have been more subtle about it and he would have only gone for vulnerable victims, I think, like Broadmoor patients. But that was just one of many different types of uh, situation where he abused his power. He knew he was untouchable because there was cases where patients told staff members they'd been abused by him and they said, the, the staff members told the patients, that's just Jimmy, you better keep your mouth shut. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think I remember uh, from one of the documentaries I saw that he was taking a picture with a nurse with other people in the room and he'd put his hand somewhere extremely inappropriate with other people, like literally next to him. Did it on top of the pops on camera? It's like the clips on YouTube. It's disgusting. The girl just jumps in the air. So that that paints the picture of somebody that's again, doesn't care about the (laughs) consequences or doesn't care about the risk and just has been emboldened by being enabled over so many years. Well, one of the things that emboldened him was his weekly dinner for the police. Because if you commit a crime across the country, it gets reported back to the jurisdiction in which you had domiciled, which was Leeds. So he had a weekly dinner for the police. And one of the guys that he was clicked up with was the guy who handled all the complaints about him that came from in all over the country. Yeah. So the So the chain of events is such that someone makes a complaint 
local police department. It gets filed with them. They have to then send it to the guy he's, who's attending his lunches. And it yeah. stops there. It gets lost. Yeah. It's madness. Yeah. But I don't think there's anyone has ever been so calculated in creating alliances with every institution. Yeah. W- w- didn't he get an award from the Pope? <laughs> didn't he get a knighthood from Maggie Thatcher? Didn't he get... And on and on and on and on it goes. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't anyone at, at the top of the royals, at the top of the, the politics, at the top of religion. You had them all. And even just like going back to Broadmoor, the fact that he had keys, is just, there's no clinical... A scenario where you can justify giving anybody that's not a staff member keys for any reason. Like, even he pitched it that he was going to go in there and change the method of operation and streamline it and get it efficient and all this stuff. Mm. That's how they, they gave him the control over the policy as well. Must have been very persuasive. And I think he'd built, built up this like persona and this aura around him. Whereas you say people were just too scared to challenge anything he was doing. So why do you think then it only came out after his death? Do you think that the people involved with him were scared of their him. necks yeah. were on the line as well? If it came out during his lifetime, that they would be held accountable as well. well it's but, like yeah, it's like the the culture of the place that you work in, don't you? So if you step into an environment where everybody is, say, being bullied, and this happens quite frequently in NHS trusts, then then any one individual is too scared to to speak out because if they're the whistleblower, they're going to get targeted. They're going to be sacked or worse, kind of, you know. A target of everybody else. So I think, even though he's not an inst- he's not an institution, it's almost like that stepping into his world. It's made very clear from the start that that's just Jimmy, and we don't talk about that, and we don't look at that. But when he's dead, then people are probably still scared. I think that it took a while for people to actually come out and speak out against him. Um, but yeah, after he died, they, there was less of a threat. I think. Have you seen what Johnny Rotten said about him? No. So he called him out back in the day. And he said that the Sex Pistols were banned for performing on top of the Pops because they were out in Savile. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to think that that kind of thing wouldn't happen nowadays. I think that even though there are powerful men who abuse their positions, in fact, we, we um, spoke to the son of one of them recently, didn't we, Peter? And we've got that case, haven't we, that I can't talk about on the channel that shows that it is... Isn't it just part of human nature, the powerful... What's it called? Um, when you think you can just get away with anything and like the sense of entitlement. Yeah. Entitlement. I think, I think it is, but I think that things are changing very gradually. So the whole Me Too movement, I think is elite deviance. That's what I was thinking of. Elite deviance. Okay. Yeah. If if you are so powerful. Yeah. Like certain politicians, I'm not going to mention in America who have been presidents. Yeah. If you're that powerful. You know you can get away with anything, well, this, this which thing, leads to you going down that road of doing those things because yeah, yeah. the things that you do regularly don't get you off anymore. Yeah. So you've got to keep getting more and more bizarre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that people are being challenged though. So that president you're talking about, from Peter Neistat to Harvey Weinstein to Prince Andrew to Jimmy Savile, I think it slowly people are becoming more confident to to speak the truth. They are getting challenged, but the, the people like. If you're thinking of the one with the C word, he's never going to go to prison for anything he's done, I don't think. Even though he was clicked up with the E word. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, let's get, let's, let's, um, what about the BBC? 
<laughs> Shouldn't the BBC? I mean, they're doing a documentary about this whole thing now. But Do you they, think they, 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 they take accountability for it? don't you think they got off lightly yeah 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 i think they do and i think part of the problem is that a lot of people at the top keep sort of changing positions as well uh so by the time everything's come out the people who were responsible or not necessarily directly involved in um sexual assaults but at least allowed it to happen have kind of moved on so it's quite hard to get accountability i think do you think these organizations bring people in for a certain period of time just so they can assume that legal liability and then move them on and bring someone else in and they can say, well, it was on the, you know, their reign. Yeah. What a conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. You're probably right. But if you look at how it broke out, um, the documentary that Matt Williams Thomas was working on, the BBC were going against it and, and shutting it down. And it was, it was tricky. They had to change media entities to actually get it out because there were so many forces at work to try and shut it down. Yeah. Do you remember that, James? The beginning of how it, how the story came out, what Mark Williams Thomas told us. Yeah, it was going to be a Newsnight program. That's it, Newsnight. And Jimmy Savile just died, and they were planning to do a Jimmy Savile special that Christmas, a tribute show to him. Wow. And they alleged that someone <coughs> higher up in the BBC called the Newsnight's investigation because it would ruin their Jimmy Savile special. That was it, yeah? How, what moral morality is that? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Isn't it? All right, so... Stalking. Stalkers, internet stalkers, trolls. Oh, my goodness. Internet stalkers, popular thing. They've all moved on to Decaheggy, haven't they, the trolls? Yeah, yeah, so still, I'm, I'm still getting it. I've not had any uh, Decaheggy flack on my channel for ages, but I did have it for about. You could a resurrect so. that quite easily. <laughs> just get him on. <laughs> sure uh, yeah, so I just thought I'd talk you through some of my kind of thoughts on the psychoanalysis of stalkers because uh, I, I do see them occasionally in my clinical practice, but also because I've, I've done videos about them recently. Um, so the first thing I'll say is that it's a, I think a common misconception is that people. Stalk, people are stalked by random strangers and that's actually very uncommon so about 80 percent of the time women and it's usually women know the um the victims of the uh, know, know the perpetrators of the stalkers in some way or another i just remembered you you've had a stalker haven't you i remember yeah. talking about this with you yeah is that all uh it's still yeah. around oh really okay it, well it's all online as well so this is quite relevant so and jen's given me a book called hunting trolls that i'm reading yeah and p- trolls are predators and it does tie into stalking yeah this is what this book is explaining to it's me. obsessive behavior isn't it yeah absolutely yeah. so i think with stalkers there's so de- demographically usually it's sort of, there's quite a, a range and sometimes it's quite successful people so even like judges footballers i don't know if you call them like classic stalkers but they have stalking behavior or controlling behavior um so usually from my experience it's either because they want to rekindle a relationship that they refuse has ended or because they got some sort of um, perverse pleasure in tormenting the victims and about half of them have substance abuse issues and about half of them have personality disorders but some of them have both so it's not not like everybody fits into that category so w- you can understand how that would happen with substance abuse issues because people who, who drink or take drugs can be quite disinhibited so they they think less about the consequences of their actions and they can be a bit more irritable and a bit more aggressive and personality disorders, as, as you might know, is like an ingrained problem with somebody's characters. So again, you can understand how that would 
that would lead to stalking. But what I think is common, I wouldn't say uh, it, it happens in all stalkers, but it's quite common, is like this easily bruised ego. So we're talking about people that are narcissist, very entitled, uh, and refuse to accept when a relationship has ended. And often you see this like para-stalking behavior during the relationship itself. So whilst the man and the woman are together, the man is often very controlling, very dominant. So they constantly want to know where their partner, now ex-partner is, who they're with, constantly checking up on them, you know, want to check their phone messages, have like paranoid, very paranoid about infidelity, sometimes on absolutely no basis. They're just, they're just convinced that their uh, partner is cheating on them. And I think that some of them even see what they're doing as like romantic gestures. So they think they're being passionate about relationship, whereas actually they're, they're just not letting go and they're being kind of dominating. So I think a lot of that comes from some sort of insecurity from childhood because that, that suggests that there's something wrong with their personality structure, right? Most people aren't like that. So I wonder whether a lot of stalkers have had something in their childhood that makes them feel so insecure. So either uh, they're like bullied at school or weren't particularly supported that well with it by their parents, or maybe they had lax parenting who with parents who didn't really pay them much attention or didn't really care about them. Or for example, like, like they were overshadowed by a sibling who was more successful or popular than them or that they're in a job where they feel that they're not being appreciated or their talents aren't, aren't being used. So I think that all leads to inferiority complexes. And the other thing about stalkers is a lot of them have very poor kind of social circles. So they don't have many friends. They, a lot of them haven't been that successful previously romantically. So they, they put in everything into their new relationship they kind of overcompensate by having nothing else in their world. So when they break up with uh, their partner, they, because they've got nothing else, because they've got no other support, that's, they, they focus completely on that and they become, as you say, obsessive. Yeah. Yeah. What about these stalkers of these OnlyFans women then? And you hear cases now where they like give massive amounts of money to these women on OnlyFans. Yeah. And then they try and get closer to them and they get rejected. They figure out where they live and show up and kill them. There's been wow. multiple cases of that in America now. Okay. So I think that is an issue with boundaries, isn't it? So I think that, and again, I'm not, not trying to victim shame in any way, but I think that probably some of the way that works is that the OnlyFans, the people that are on OnlyFans kind of um, insinuate that there's a special relationship with them and the people giving them money because they want more money. Uh, whereas there are, there should be boundaries there. Whereas I think the people that pay the money that end up becoming stalkers uh, feel entitled. Don't they? So they feel I've put in so much money. And even though we didn't overtly say this, I now deserve something in return because otherwise, why did I give you this money? So I think that's, that's what that's about. It's like, a, and do these men think that actually she, the girl is only talking to them? Um, I suppose it depends how naive they are and how convincing yeah. the women are. So I'm sure there must be some situations. You're on OnlyFans and you're like, yeah, just for you. Yeah. Yeah. No. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm sure there must be some situations where they're meant, where they're, they're meant to, f they're, they're made to feel like that. So they yeah. part with more of the money. So yeah. are you saying then that a stalker's objective is to cause as much suffering to the person because that gets them off or do they have a delusion that they're actually going to get with the person? So I think there's categories of stalkers. There is, and you mentioned a couple of them there. So there's ones who have previously been in a relationship with somebody and arguably they're more dangerous because they know that person's patterns, especially if they've been in a relationship for months or years, they know where that person lives, they know what their friends are, et cetera, et cetera. Then there's people who have some sort of delusional belief that they're in a relationship when they're not. 
So these are the people that I would see in my clinical practice. I'd, I have to say that's quite rare. It's only a small category and they usually have some mental illness like schizophrenia or delusional disorder uh, and erotomania. I don't know if you've heard that term, but it's actually a, a psychiatric diagnosis. And that's usually, uh, it can be both men and women, but it, it's more common uh, when a woman has these delusional beliefs that somebody usually famous who they've never met they believe they're in a relationship. So it's a bit like I was talking about before about delusions. Even though they're presented with evidence to the contrary, they don't believe that evidence. So they believe there's some sort of sex, uh, special relationship. And if they see that person, say if that person's a film star, they believe that there's coded messages in what that person's saying directly to them. So that's what they actually believe. And those people are dangerous, obviously, but they're, they're easier to treat, at least in theory, because it's a mental illness and you can treat that with medication, whereas everybody, or the other types of stuff, because you can't. I was going to ask, how do you treat it? Yeah. Uh, and then there's people who uh, feel who've never really been in a relationship but, but feel rejected or feel entitled like I think your uh, OnlyFans uh, the OnlyFans category falls exactly into that category who feel entitled for whatever reason either because they've put money in or because they've paid attention to somebody or sometimes it's even just as simple as they flirted with somebody and they got the wrong cues but whereas most people would take that rejection and move on some people are so kind of um, insecure and obsessive and entitled that they, they, they refuse to move on and they, they just carry on the stalking behavior. Yeah. So to answer your question, I think there's, there's different motivations for different people. So the hunting trolls book, and it says that the motivation of online stalkers and trolls is to either drive the person off the internet to deplatform them or to get the person to kill themselves. Yeah. And they find really vulnerable targets. Yeah. yeah. Um, for example, like they'll they'll find a website for someone who's who's just recently died, yeah, and they'll they'll look at all the family members of the deceased and 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 pick a yeah, person yeah. and 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 start hammering away, yeah. in a campaign. These they like there's networks of them, yeah, and they just do this. And the, the goal is to try and get someone to kill themselves or wipe them off the internet, what leads someone or, or, to, do or that? to get them to lose yeah. their employment as well. Yeah, that's another goal. So it's it's funny you mention that because I've done a video on exactly this, and I talked about this case of a young girl called Hannah Smith who was only 14 when she committed suicide. Um, I can't remember the year, but it was roughly about five or six years ago. Uh, and it's exactly that. So she's got relentlessly bullied on the internet. She was called like fat. She was called ugly. She killed herself. And then it gets even more twisted. The same people started targeting her older sister who was 16 and her father. Um, just saying like, why are you going on about Hannah? And what makes you think you're so entitled to, to, you know, publicly mourn for her? So yeah, to answer why people do that, it's a really difficult question to answer, isn't it? I think one thing that may, that's different about internet. Uh, trolls and internet stalking compared to real life is that because they're more removed i think they they disassociate what they're doing with like the repercussions and the guilt so uh they feel because they don't know that person face to face not only are they uh, dis are they separated with distance but also with time as well because you can write a nasty comment and the, the person might not see it for days or weeks and they might not ever see it so they don't they f they, they don't feel connected to to what they're doing uh, and i think the an anonymity of the internet kind of amplifies what you're willing to do basically wow so yeah. what do you do to defer these trolls uh well there's two schools of thoughts i think probably the most effective thing is just to literally ignore them mm. and not uh, retaliate or reply in any way that's what they say in this book the minute you respond we've got you 
they feed off responses. But I have to say, I, I toy with my trolls a little bit. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I don't do this with the Dekahegi trolls because I can sense there's something a bit too uh, dark and, and dangerous about them. So I don't reply to any of them at all. But with other sort of mid-level trolls, who don't really <laughs> shit, I just write something and I, I, I make sure that I'm never horrible or nasty, but I write something silly, just really surreal, like a bit of what I would call like banter. So like, for example, I'll give you an example. Um, somebody... I did a psychoanalysis of one case. I think it was Putin, I think. And somebody wrote something like, surely, uh, analyzing some, psychoanalyzing somebody you've never met, surely your future employers wouldn't want to, see, uh, no, surely you wouldn't want your future employers to see this. And I just wrote back saying, don't call me Shirley. <laughs> 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 You're just like playing with them a little bit. And I do that not because of them, but I think my other viewers would, would appreciate my sort of silly comments. Yeah. I'm going to go check out your comments. <laughs> yeah. That's how well man turned it around in the beginning. He wanted to show up at the houses and kill them. But by the end of it, he was saying, I'm sorry if my weight offends you. <laughs> <laughs> it's funnier to do that, I think, isn't it? And also, it, dep- like, it depends how sensitive people are. Like, I know people, a lot of people say, I don't care, I don't care, but I generally don't really care. No. Uh, they target the more sensitive people yeah. and yeah, say yeah. the most heinous things to yeah. try and get them to kill themselves. They're like saying, go and kill yourself on, on some of these women that, in these cases in this book, like w- women who've got like mental health issues and eating disorders and they, they're just in there saying the most evil things possible. Yeah. To try and cause maximum damage. Yeah. So this is, this is quite horrible. There's something called the Blue Whale Suicide Games. Um, and basically they are what they sound like. So they were, they existed quite a while ago, I think over 10 years ago now, where these chat rooms, these groups and in internet chat rooms would target people who they felt were vulnerable, who had mental health issues and basically try and get them to commit suicide. And the, the way they did this wasn't by insulting them. It was almost the opposite. They would, pretend that they were playing some sort of game and they would give them little challenges to do and they were increasing in audacity and risk so one might be you have to go and swear at your parents and record it and send us a picture of it and the other one might be you have to these are like young teenagers the victims you have to sneak out of your house and run around the dark and record it and send it to us uh, or do graffiti or damage something so the whole point was to kind of get them to acquiesce in bigger and bigger incremental steps so they felt they were part of the game and then it would be self-harm then eventually it would be you have to kill yourself and, and it actually happened so people did kill yeah, themselves yeah, a couple of people did yeah. oh my god it's insane isn't it you know, is there terrific. enough criminal justice in place uh, I think the police have been quite slow to react to uh, hate crimes that are related to the internet in general I think that's and they're so savvy funny. they're so tech savvy it's almost impossible to find out who they are, where they are in the world. So you've got all this different jurisdictions, haven't you, of the, yeah. of the entire world? They could be anywhere. Absolutely. So that must give them a sense of uh, invincibility as well. I do think um, that the pa- parents have to take some responsibility, right? You have to know what your kids are. When your kids are a certain age, at least, you have to know what they're looking at and who's been contacting them. Mm. So we've got to get to the train station now. So we pick our next guest up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Huge thank you for coming on. Two copies of Into Mine. Check it out if you want thank way you. more details about the DAS cases. Right. As a forensic psychiatrist, it's Dr. Jahom Das's job to treat and rehabilitate what the tabloids might call the criminally insane. Many of whom assault, rob, rape and even kill. From the teenager who set his house on fire with his mother locked inside to the former model who committed millions of pounds worth of fraud and managed to use mental illness to wriggle out of her charges, Dr. Das must delve into the minds of these violent offenders to elicit their symptoms of mental illness, understand their actions, prevent future atrocities, and help those that society 
would rather forget. Available worldwide now. Check it out. Can I ask you quickly, who's the former model? Uh, so I don't use her real name in the book because I can't because re- she was my patient, but I call her Darina in a book. But I think I talked about her on one of these podcasts. I think it was the very first one that I did. So I don't think you were there. No. Um, but if you want more details, it's in the book. Check it out. <laughs> Thanks for watching. Please check out everybody's links in the description box. I'm trying to get Das's channel up to 20k subs. So please give him a sub. And if you want to watch our Savile documentary, uncensored version with David I, I'll put the link in the description box. Cheers. Thanks for watching. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Here at Boomer and Jen, we offer a wide range of organic or recycled clothing. We all know our planet is important. We only have this one. So it's vital that we all work together to slow down and reverse the changes to the environment. Whilst we all know that big industry are having a significant effect on pollution, here at Boomer and Jen, we believe that if we all make small changes, we can do our part. Fast fashion causes detrimental effects to the planet. Not only is nearly 20% of global wastewater produced by the fast fashion industry, but there is a considerable amount of fast fashion ending up in landfill. So let's move away from fast fashion items that are only worn once or twice and start wearing extremely comfortable, durable and environmentally friendly clothing and ethical jewellery. Boomer and Jen was founded in a quiet town in Devon in 2018. It has now gone from strength to strength as the world is becoming more aware of the current climate situation, helping our customers to buy sustainable, quality clothing. All of our products are fair trade and registered with the Global Organic Textiles Standard Association. Check us out on organiccottonclothing.co.uk. This podcast is sponsored by Gadfly Press. We are proud to announce the publication of Britain's number one art forger, Max Brandert, The Life of a Cheeky Faker. And from the back cover blurb, Max the Forger is an artist and gentleman whose colourful lifestyle has spanned over 70 years. He has lived under the strict regime of Bernardo's children's homes, being an elephant handler in the circus, lived rough, busked his way from Brighton to Bombay, sold his fakes up and down the country, dined with dukes, socialised with celebrities, associated with gangsters, served time in prison, and donated tens of thousands to charity. And through it all, he has never stopped smiling and loving life and missing his mum. Quote from the book. Mr. Brandert, I do not see you as a malicious criminal, sighed the judge. But why, oh why, do you continue to use your God-given talent in this way? I just can't help myself, Your Honour. It's like an addiction, I grinned. Available worldwide on Amazon. Link in the description box below this video. Thank you for supporting our sponsor.